Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. I've had eight books published already, and I just finished my second novel, so stay tuned for news about when and where you can read it. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com, and you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast, where you'll find stories of courageous people daring to share their talent with the world. Now, on to the show. Tom Slay is the author of 11 books of poetry, most recently, The King's Touch. He has won numerous awards for his writing, including a $100,000 Kingsley Tufts Award and the John Updike Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, Virginia Quarterly Review, The Village Voice, The Best of the Best American Poetry, and so much more. A resident of Brooklyn, New York, Tom is a professor in the MFA program at Hunter College. He has also worked as a journalist in Syria, Lebanon, Somalia, Kenya, Iraq, and Libya. Today, Tom and I speak about how his early interest in anthropology and his travels to war zones and their aftermath informs his poetry. We discuss how to build a writing career, how to not be afraid of poetry, how to gain perspective and tell honest stories, and how writing is something you do every day. Tom, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. So, hey, Tom, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thanks, Len. I'm glad we can finally do this. Yeah, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk with a fellow poet. And I want to say the first thing that intrigued me about you was that you are a journalist as well as a poet. And I like to say that I'm both as well, uh, both my experiences in both genres. So I found that in my early days of being serious about my poetry, my journalistic skills really made themselves known in attention to detail and sometimes a reporting tone in my poems. So I wanted to start by asking you how your journalism and your poetry inform one another. Well, that's interesting that you came at it from journalism going into the poetry because I came at it from the complete opposite direction. Uh-huh. When I first started doing journalism, um, I had no idea what I was doing. I Basically, it came about by happenstance, which is, you know, a lot of how my life shapes itself. But in any case, what happened was um, I got invited to go to uh, Lebanon and um, Syria 2007 by a woman uh, who was a um, Lebanese poet and her husband who was a Syrian poet. And their idea was they, were, they wanted to take writers, a handful of writers over to uh, Lebanon and Syria just to introduce them to um, Palestinian refugees in both Syria and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. As soon as we arrived, a kind of mini civil war broke out. 
Mm. And I was supposed to write something for a magazine, which I contracted before I left. And I had no idea what I was doing when I was so <laughs> well, a lot, but you know, you show up and there are bombs going off everywhere and people are being shot and it's an official kind of civil war situation um, that was there, luckily, with an old school journalist, probably like yourself, who basically saved me because, you know, I had a notebook and a pencil and I thought really stupid. <laughs> in a notebook i've got a pencil but what i'm supposed to do with them and this guy was busily you know taking down nuts about everything nothing seemed to be happening there he was taking notes and after the second day of this you know cars blowing up and whatnot all these dramatic events and you know which of course you know little tommy boy had no idea what he got himself into immensely interesting of course and deeply curious about what were the reasons for the sectarian violence why was it happening how it had transpired and so i just said to my friend so i you know i see you taking all these notes um what are you taking notes about yeah and the first thing he said to me Lynn, which may dovetail with your experience he said well tom Nobody is interested in your feelings. So don't take notes about what you're feeling. Take notes about what's happening right in front of you. Just descriptive three or four words of a scene so that when you get back, you can actually write up a scene. These notes, which are sort of help jog your memory. Yeah. And he said, you'll never know how insignificant a moment can suddenly become. And that's certainly what I discovered. I remember taking notes one night. I was watching television in my hotel room um, after a bunch of car bombs had gone off. And suddenly, you know, an ad came on and it was a really nice Mercedes. Mm -hmm. There were lots and lots of Mercedes in Beirut. In any case, it was a nice-looking Mercedes, and there was a guy in a really nice leather jacket, and he had this little device in his hand. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I'm fancy door opener or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then the voiceover came on, and it said, for a world of security. Mm. And what it was, was it was a device to sense whether or not there was plastic explosive that had put been put underneath the wheel of his car. Wow. And it had all of the same, you know, advertising tropes that we're all familiar with. Nice meat music, except here it was, you know, in this other weird context. And I yeah. realized, wow, that that kind of encapsulates the situation in so many ways that go way beyond any kind of abstract, you know, collaborate. And it gave you the texture of daily life suddenly in a way that was much more real for an outsider like me, like yeah. people who haven't been to Lebanon and Syria. Um, yeah. Even though, you know, I'm, you know, sort of in the background, America has a huge responsibility for what's going on in those countries, too. So yeah, yeah. That, that, that's how I came to it, Lynn. You, you were much smarter. <laughs> I stumbled and bumbled and yeah. kind of figured it out. <laughs> well, how do you, then how do you go about writing your poetry? I would think that the curiosity, the noticing is the same, no? It really is. I mean, I was amazed that what I couldn't do in journalism was, I, I, I'm not a moralist. I don't like moralists, really. The way editorialists think is not how I think. If I have blood on my hands, I have blood on my hands. You know, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to stand on the mountaintop and orate at people and tell them what they should do and how they should think and all the rest of that. There are a lot of people out there who will do it. Yeah. Um, and they do it better than I do. Um, but what I learned from poetry, as I'm sure you 
no, uh, from journalism and then in your poems, that I learned how to register details with a lot of that. Yeah. And that's when I began to focus on the small stuff, not the big picture, but the small picture. You know, okay. I got utterly fascinated by blast waves, you know, mm-hmm. and, and suddenly the things that were happening to me on a small scale, you know, like I met a tech, tank and I was uh-huh. really fascinated with the kind of communication that he had with his tank underneath the tank and he's tapping on it and waiting for the sound that he's hearing back. And it was almost like he and the tank were talking. Hmm. And those kinds of details began to, you know, work their way into poems, even outlandish things like I, I had to go down out of the South, do some interviews down there uh, where the majority of the fighting had happened during the 2006 uh, war mm-hmm. uh, left on in Israel. And so I had, I wanted to go down there and see what had transpired there, what the situation was. Yeah, among local folk, and and um, I went. I had to get clearance uh, mm-hmm. to go down south. I remember going into this yard, you know, military yard. It was like Sunday, hot as can be, and I got out of, you know, the car, and I was walking through the yard, and there were a lot of tanks, and the mm-hmm. tanks. You know, when I say tanks, we have this idea of these you know, monster American tanks. Now, they're like just about the size of a horse and cart, you know, these mm-hmm. little French tanks. But in any case, I kept seeing the stuff moving around on top of the tanks, under the tanks, around the tanks. And I suddenly realized that there were uh, feral cats, that the, that there were hundreds of yeah. cats yeah. hanging around on the tanks. And you know that wouldn't happen. In the U.S., you know, no. I mean, maybe it would, but I yeah. doubt it. I don't think it <laughs> cats hang around but anyway there they were and later on I did write a poem about that I wrote a poem about the tank mechanic I mean the various things of that began to creep back into the work and of course you know when we've been doing this stuff for as long as I have I I saw a lot of suffering just intense suffering profound suffering which I never would have come in contact with otherwise and that just that really really changed me as a human being you know one of the things that I, I first thought when I was doing journalism uh, was that I was going to need some kind of uh, reliable point of view that I was going to have to be, you know, some kind of commentator uh, that I was going to have to have opinions. And, you know, I don't really, that's really not my thing. I, I don't, mm-hmm. what I found though, uh, that I could do if I wasn't going to do, you know, the kind of op-ed editorializing, do this, don't do that kind of thing, was that I could record with great accuracy uh, the texture of everyday life, just mm-hmm. normal, small interchanges. And it became, you know, such an interesting way to proceed because I suddenly felt a great weight lift off me mm-hmm. about having to be an international journalist. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and so one of the things that I began to think about was that no matter what else I did, the persona who wrote this stuff had to be completely upfront about the fact that there are lots of things that he didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to build that kind of perspective into the piece as opposed Mm -hmm. to pretending that I was some kind of an instant expert. Mm -hmm. And naturally, because of that, I began to gravitate toward, you know, really small, absurd details, just because that's how my mind uh, tends to work. 
Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, um, I remember being, I think it's really one of the kind of, I don't know, highlights of civilization under the circumstances, you know? I mean, being able to laugh at your own circumstances strikes me as being a really high order of uh, civilized, you know, way of thinking. And so what happened is I was dazzled by the sun. And I kept seeing these shadows, which were moving in and out of the shadows of the tanks. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out what, what they were until suddenly, you know, I put my hand over my eyes and squinted hard. And suddenly I saw that there were hundreds of feral cats hmm. hanging around on top of the tanks mm-hmm. and in the shadow, in the, you know, in the shade. Um, and it was a very strange, you know, juxtaposition of you know, just the ordinary, I mean, I'm a great cat lover. And (laughs) I mean, again, it's the same thing as what I'm talking about. And the earlier instant, it's just a moment of just the horrendous facts of war. And it is the horrendous facts of war. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this kind of domestic intimacy. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, that's always been what's happened is that the, you know, the tragic and the ludicrous are always side by side, or the tragic and the intimate are always side by side. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about the making of The King's Touch, your latest book of poetry. Tell me what inspired the title, the tone. I'd love to hear all about it. Sure. Well, one thing I'll say about uh, writers, and I'm sure you know this, Lynn, is they make up all kinds of shit. <laughs> yeah. In, 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 in explaining what they really were just flying by the seat of their pants. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yep. So with that caveat, written 14 of them now, mm-hmm. so I can't do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> they all kind of announce themselves differently when you go to put it together. In, in this particular book, uh, the the title comes from, and I'm sure it was sparked off in part by the circumstances of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it was also sparked off in part, I'm sure, by my own personal history with illness. Okay. Um, and that is, you know, when I was 26, I got uh, diagnosed with a, you know, potentially a life-threatening blood disease. Mm. And, um, you know, in those days, the diagnosis to death was about 10 years. Wow. So, you know, I thought I'd be dead by the time I was 34. Huh. You know, here I am. But what was weird, Lynn, was this. During all the years that I was ill, I felt very, very deeply a kind of estrangement uh, from the person that I was when I was well, Hmm. because it really radically changed my life in a hurry. Hmm. And the amount of sickness that I went through and the hospitals and the transfusions and all of that Mm -hmm. um, really separated me in a way from ordinary life. What happened was, you know, I, I eventually had this way of just pursuing it by, you know, what I call healthy denial, mm-hmm. just pretending to be well, mm-hmm. you know, and just going ahead with my life and doing what I could do mm-hmm. um, with uh, within the parameters of the illness. And then, and then, you know, then the illness began to let up on me. But one thing that persisted was this deep sense of alienation, of separateness, of mm-hmm. aloneness of being isolated inside a body which looked normal to others, but was not normal. Mm-hmm. And eventually you, know, you just kind of grow around it. When COVID hit, suddenly this experience that I had had privately mm-hmm. was like worldwide. Yeah. So suddenly what I, I, I had been experiencing, you know, as this kind of, you know, private condition. Mm-hmm. 
I, I suddenly saw, oh my God, everybody feels this kind of omnipresent fear now. Yeah. And and one of the things that struck me is is um I, I had been reading oh a few years back about um you know I'm kind of a nerd. <laughs> Aren't we all? all writers. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. I was reading a lot about uh, you know, the history of um but I was reading about the history of the English monarchy in, in particular, uh James, James the first. Okay. Uh and what was fascinating about James the first, uh, I mean he was he he later unified the throne of Scotland and England. Mm-hmm. And um, but he was a strange guy. He very he was deeply into witches, mm. um, and he was uh, wrote a book uh, called Demonology. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, just incredibly strange. Book, yeah, yeah. Um, detailing all of the you know various kinds of supernatural uh, dangers in the kingdoms of Scotland and England, and what. Mm-hmm supposed to do about them okay we did do things about them like burning people at the stake of course the things that he had to do in relationship to this in those days uh there was uh, something called the king's evil okay and the king's evil was basically uh tuberculosis it's a tuberculosis germ but rather than infecting the lungs it did infect the lungs but it infected the skin oh and so it created these terrible lesions um, you know, mainly, you know, sometimes in the face and these big open stores, these big ulcers. Oh. And part of the king's job, and it was a kind of hereditary thing that had been passed on for, you know, many, many centuries, probably. Yeah. Was that the king, because he was the divinely anointed one of God, had mm-hmm. the power of healing the sick by simply mm-hmm. reaching out his hand and touching them. And the thing that I found deeply amusing... <laughs> about <laughs> the king was he's horribly squeamish about being around sick people but for political reasons he had to hold these vast levies where you know everybody lined up with their oh. whole ulcers so that he would then have to you know touch them you wow know? i mean okay. yeah kind of epidemiologist nightmare but there it is <laughs> yeah and i couldn't help but identify uh with all those commoners you know waiting for the king's touch you know to heal me um, yeah why shouldn't why shouldn't the king's touch heal me? So yeah. that's where the title came from. And I, and I felt in a way that when I came across it, that it sort of, you know, it had an implication with a recent American president who also was a German foe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it had a it, it, you know, I wanted to touch it lightly. I didn't want to do it heavy duty, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, there was also um the sense of something slightly miraculous. Uh, mm-hmm. inexplicable by normal reason mm-hmm. uh, and then you know these power that could be exerted in you know really kind of terrible ways which i think in a way begins to speak to the what happens in the first section of the book which again yeah. comes out of the of some of the journalism some of the experiences that i've had yeah uh, uh doing this kind of journalism about refugees over the last 15 years okay all right. What do you see as the main message you're trying to convey through this collection of poems? Well, I think it's different than other collections uh-huh. um, uh, because one of the things I think that's everywhere in the poems is just the recognition of my age. Mm. You no, know, I'm 70, you know, mm-hmm. I'm 70 recently. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot less time in front of me than there is behind me. And and in a way, without being um, 
I don't know, kind of you know, grandiose about it. it. It feels as if, you know, that America is in one of these weird, kind of deeply polarized places, which is, you know, and every journalist in the universe has said it. But but in a way, but in a deeper way than that, there's this philosopher named um, Taylor de Chardin, whose philosophy has always greatly appealed to me. He was a he was a soldier in the First World War, and he talked about the uh, uh, just the spiritual intensity of being in battle. At the same time, you know, he came up with this idea that the entire world was blanketed in human thought, hmm. and that human thought was a way of consolation. It was a way of solace. And so I, I began to think about that in terms of my own age and thinking, well, you know, when I'm dead, um, nonetheless, you know, human thought will be there. It's a different version of maybe of the King's Touch, you know, the difference between this book and other books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little valedictory. It's like, see you later, folks. And you're probably going to have five more books before that that yeah, time comes, right? I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. We'll we'll make a bet. We'll see, and then we'll have you back yeah, on the yeah, show. Yeah. So, so um, on a lighter note, I'd love to hear about your experiences as an expatriate uh, immersed in other languages and how that inspired you to write in English. I know you've said. Um, and I'm quoting, I was extremely lonely for the sound of English. So I'd love to hear about those experiences. <laughs> when I was uh, in my very early 20s, I think 21 years old, I was studying anthropology because anthropology seemed like such a wonderful, interesting way to live a life among people who are really quite different than you are and try to understand them in terms that they would recognize. Mm-hmm. You know, but mm-hmm. I, I very quickly learned the discipline of anthropology had nothing to do with that. I, I was hitchhiking to see my girlfriend. Yeah. And so I was hitchhiking uh, between Los Angeles and California because I was going to go see my girlfriend. I was going to school in L.A. and I lived in San Diego and I got picked up by a um, truck driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wasn't driving his truck. He began to tell me about how he'd just been down to southern Mexico uh-huh. uh, to a place called Chiapas, which okay. is a southern state in Mexico. And to a place called San Cristobal de las Casas. He said he had met the woman, Gertrude Blom, Trudy Blom, who's a Swiss um, archaeologist and a, um, a brilliant photographer. Many of her photographs, or if not, you know, sort of the majority of her photographs uh, are based on the um, on photographs that she took of the Lacandones, who live in, between Guatemala and Mexico in the, in the Selva, the jungle between uh, those two countries. And 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 in those days it was sad, and I think you know it's it's a little more nuanced than that. But they were the most like the ancient Maya, and he mm-hmm. gave her the address. And you know, just think how ridiculously unlikely such a thing is. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote to the the address he gave me, and you know, believe it or not, and two weeks later I got a, a letter back saying, wow. "Sure, hmm. we'd love to have you come down." And the lesson is said. Of course, you must be able to work under any possible conditions. So I got down there, and basically, San Cristobal in those those days didn't have electricity except during the day. So it was Mm. black. And I came up to this really imposing house, knocked on this huge gate, you know, Mm -hmm. knock, 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 like that. And these Mm -hmm. awful wolfhounds came bounding up to the gate, barking. And I was kind of like, oh, my God, where the heck am I? (laughs) This was what was called was the Casa de Navalón, House of the Jaguar. And this mm. was a research center 
And it, it also doubled as a hotel. And Trudy was an amazing person. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. I, she was thoroughly admirable. She ran the thing, you know, uh, on a, it was all, everything was always on a shoestring. And so we would get paid our wages on a Friday and she would borrow them back from us on Monday. <laughs> ah, oh, my God. <laughs> really, really, I mean, you know, no, that's just, we, we assumed, oh, sure, here. <laughs> and we were getting a room and board and there was nothing to spend money on anyway. But mm. in any case, I started working for Trudy. And, and I met lots and lots of anthropologists because they all came through the research center. I spoke Spanish all the time. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're speaking Spanish all the time, you get I, I was a, quite a different person in Spanish than I was in English, who's kind of this nerdy, introspective, quiet mm-hmm. fellow. And so I was gesturing with my hands. I got lonely. I remember it was a wonderful moment. Uh, there was an anthropologist that I loved, uh, very different than the other anthropologists. He didn't talk, you know, jargon and shop, and mm-hmm. he spoke perfect uh, Mayan. Just mm-hmm. mine. They were about five, three, five, two, very short, very, you know, kind mm-hmm. of you know, strong, solidly built. And Robert mm-hmm. Bruce was about six, six. Mm. Okay. So really tall anthropology. And these always sat next to each other at dinner, which was kind of a well, it was like a minute, it was a long trestle table that came out of a, you know, a movie about the Middle Ages. <laughs> oh, you're all sitting there like. Trudy was dressed in a green bouquet gown, looking very, very, you know, part of it was kitsch. Part of it was, you know, this kind of colonial, uh, neo-colonial, you know, status that Trudy sort of lived in. And it was very easy to criticize and and a little creepy at the same time. And at the same time, you know, she was a real advocate. Uh-huh. For those folks, because if it hadn't been for Trudy, the timber companies, folks who were after um, minerals, they would have wiped wiped the lacandonis out in a heartbeat. Robert Bruce invited me back to his room um, because he wanted me to help him bandage a little monkey that had fallen into the fire. Uh, its paws had gotten burned. And so he wanted me to hold the monkey behind its neck uh, with my fingers so that the monkey couldn't bite the heck out of them. And so he put the salve on the monkey's, you know, hands and then wrapped wrapped the gauze around them. And as he did it, he talked about the Mayan sacred book. And he did it in this language, you know, it was English, but it was like a quasi-technical language, but it was also uh, very down home. And I heard that language and I thought, oh, my God. That's language like I've never heard it used. And then a few days later, I was happened to be in the library at night, and a guy named Charles Bell showed up, and he, he began to talk. And he said, well, here, let me read you some poetry. And he took down from the shelves um, Tennyson, down from the shelves, and he began to read The Lady of Shalott. I'll never forget it. And he, he would get to the refrain. He would say this in a really exaggerated way. I am a weary, a weary, I wish that I were dead. Hmm. I said, yeah, I can relate. And and at that moment, just some kind of weird light bulb went on. And the very next day, I started writing stuff, hmm. you know, vignette about Robert Bruce uh-huh. and the monkey. By the end of three months, I, I was just writing all the time, just taking all these notes, trying making these little portraits of all the people that I saw, quite a collection of eccentrics. And that's really how it happened. I was lonely for the sound of English and then mm-hmm. a different kind of English. And it put me in touch with that self, which I was, you know, uh, missing so badly. Yeah. So was that the beginning of your poetry career? Or had you written poetry 
younger? No, no. My mother was a wonderful um, English teacher, a very powerful English teacher, uh, legendary, in fact, really quite legendary. And and she, um, uh, well, she took her life uh, uh, just this April. Uh, she was ninety-seven. Oh, and, and I remember. I'm so sorry. Her. Oh no, it's, it's, I mean, wow, well, that's 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 life, eh? And yeah. and she, um, I remember being a little boy. And I remember her calling me into her room, and she began to read aloud to me uh, from Walden by Thoreau. And it was a piece of the of Walden about the ant wars. And it was a total transformation of my mother, because mm. she had gone from being my mother to this strange creature who was thoroughly enjoying language and basically what's going on is uh thoreau is doing this kind of mock heroic description of these red and black ants who are in the most savage combat you mm -hmm. can imagine chewing each other's legs off and each other's heads off <laughs> and it, it has this kind of oddly humorous tone even at the same time as it's you know really gruesome and there she was thoroughly enjoying it hmm. you know? and she went immediately you know from the category of mom to like the category of total weirdo. And I thought, yeah. wow, I'd never seen that in you. Yeah. And I yeah. said, I really, really like that for myself. And I think that's when I really began to read a lot uh -huh. as a child, but I didn't really write until I had that you know, sense of estrangement. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I, I teach a lot of poetry. I, I write a lot of poetry, huh? um, but so many people find poetry inaccessible or intimidating. And as a poet, I find that frustrating or sometimes maddening. You know, I've had experiences where I, I'm in a few critique groups and um, in one, I might be the only poet. And uh, the first time I submitted a poem, the other writers were like, well, I don't really, I don't really understand poetry. So I don't know if I can contribute, but, and it's like, no, that's a cop out. Like it, you can access poetry. It, it, it just might take a little effort, you know, but so I wanted to ask you, what about the genre beckons to you? You know, what do you love about poetry, about mm -hmm. about writing it, but also just sitting with it? Well, it's just what you said, uh, Lynn, uh, sitting with it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I love the quiet. You know, Elizabeth Bishop, what I really love as that thing that, you know, she says that the condition for appreciating, say, a poem is the same condition that you need for writing it, and that is what she calls a self-forgetful perfectly useless concentration and i love that description of it and that's yeah. exactly what i experience i mean if somebody were asked me you say oh well you publish so many books you must have a lot of discipline i don't really have much discipline mm -hmm. um, but what i do have is i get a profound sense of pleasure from sitting by myself in a room and reading um and then suddenly a poem will start mm -hmm. to come to me and getting out of my own way and listening to what's in my head mm -hmm. and trying to get that down. And there's something so totally absorbing about it. You know, when I'm writing a poem, I'm never bored. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to be bored. And right. I have uh, come to the point where, you know, whether or not it makes good poems, but the process of sitting quietly by myself is just really an essential thing that I've been able to squeeze out of my life. Yeah. And, you know, it means that I don't spend a lot of time doing other things. Mm -hmm. well, that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and for me, the, the pleasure of it, if somebody were to say to me, oh, well, I don't even understand poetry, is say, yeah, well, yeah, I don't even, I mean, honestly, I don't understand it either, pal. <laughs> 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 you say you don't understand it if you slow your brain down. Yeah. You'll have associations as yeah. you need it. Yeah. And that's the first step. Yeah. You got to read it twice. I always tell people. Yeah, you, you gotta close your eyes and listen to it, and you know, sit yeah. with it, like you said. Yeah, it's a sensual experience as opposed to as opposed to a consumable experience. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And and that's one of the things that I love about it too, Lynn. I'm sure you had that experience. Is sometimes you're getting in, you're in the middle of writing a poem, and you're and you're thinking to yourself, I've never said anything like this before. Mm, yeah, Even like the fact that I'm thinking it is a little scary at times. Yeah. You know, and it's exciting and it's a place of discovery. And even if you're writing badly, you don't know it until until you wrote until it's over with. And and you get a great high out of it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, I'm sure you know that. And yeah. and maybe maybe it is that of course I teach grad students. It's been a long time since I've taught folks who didn't have any desire, you know, or or that's not their world. But mm-hmm. even with my dad, mm-hmm. at least literary person on the face of the earth mm-hmm. he had a way of listening uh to a poem and then asking you you know just really simple questions i, I didn't really get what the bird was doing in it. and i i would think yeah. you know i always um when i write something i think it makes perfect sense it is brilliant to me and then when i share it with someone and they're like i'm not getting this i'm like what are you talking about it makes perfect sense but <laughs> you know yeah it's it's a process to to yeah, write it's a, yeah and that's yeah. part of it too it's a process it's it's deeply pleasurable to yeah. to be in the place of writing is the most fun i have all day yeah I mean, people talk about how tortured they are about writing. And true, it, it, one is stupider, or in my case, it's possible to be stupider today than it was yesterday and <laughs> stupider tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's not really about whether I'm stupid or not. Right, right. Um, it's about something else that's just more profound. If it were just profound, it, it'd be pretentious and silly. And it's yeah. about making sense of the world, too, just yeah. figuring out what you think about things or what's happening. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, a kind of provisional moment where you think, oh yeah, that 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 makes sense to me, and then you come back to that five years later, and it's something different, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's so nice to talk with a poet, and um, as our conversation comes to a close, I wonder if you might have any advice to um, aspiring writers who are listening about how do they build their writing career? What do they do? What's you know, what's the what's the path? Any kind of advice you might offer? I remember I had an old uh, an old friend uh, painter, and I would get all tangled up in my head about issues of career. You know, the whole circus end of poetry, the publishing end of it, which of course is important, and everybody wants to have that validation and as mm-hmm. as anyone. Mm-hmm. And, and I was talking about it, and he just looked at me and said, "Don't get distracted." And I said, "Oh, okay, Benny, uh, I get it. Don't get distracted." And by distracted, I, I just think he meant like if you let the world. I've been inside bubbles of taste, mm-hmm. and I've been outside bubbles of taste. Mm-hmm. You know, like anybody who's been at this game for a long time, I've won things, and I've also lost things. Mm-hmm. And I think I would say to uh, somebody who's just starting out is to do the best you can to keep the, those those things separate. Mm-hmm. The 
you know, the self-forgetful, perfectly useless concentration of sitting down and doing the work and feeling the pleasure in it and feeling a sense of discovery in it. And then the reception of the work is a completely different thing. And yeah, it, and yeah. It's, and it's beyond your control, most of it. Yeah. Uh, you certainly try to send things out and whatnot, but if it comes back, that doesn't mean anything about the quality of it. It's just, it's just uh, the capacity to fend off the sorts of, you know, bad thoughts one has about oneself, and I have them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get rejected by somebody, mm-hmm. those things aren't really what's happening mm-hmm. uh, when you're inside a home. Those yeah. things are the kinds of distractions that Benny was talking. I mean, that's what I would say to a younger writer. And the reason I can say it to a younger writer is that I say it to myself all the time. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I always tell my students and and the writers that I coach that, you know, the business of writing is very different than the act of writing. Yeah. And I put them on different days because it's different energy and I can't do both. So I, I spend way more time writing than I do trying to get published or marketing. Huh. I do that, but it's it it gets this much time because I want I want my life to be filled with writing. So yeah, yeah that's right, exactly. I mean, I couldn't yeah. agree more. And I think it's it's wise the way you way you've split it up. I I actually do do the do it the same way. Yeah, know? the words begin to come, and you don't judge them. You don't think about are they going to be published or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And you just, you just get into this uh, other place in which you're just experiencing this kind of uh, pure stream of concentration mm-hmm. and it's happiness to me. Yeah. That's a great, yeah. a great note to end on. So Tom, yeah. it has been such a pleasure to chat with you. I will be sharing in the show notes, all of the links to buy your books and how to find you. And I'm just so <laughs> delighted that I've had this chance to chat with you today. Thanks for being on the Make yeah. Meaning podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much, Lynn. And uh, good luck with your work. I'm sure you don't need it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngaladner.com.